right, welcome back to the Morning Brushback. This is episode 63. We've got a awesome guest today. So Bobby, number one, how are you doing? Number two, who's our guest today? I am fantastic as always. Our guest today is former teammate of both of ours and current hitting coach, collegiate professional hitting coach, Dan Hennigan of Brain and Barrel Hitting. Find him on Instagram at brain underscore and underscore barrel. Uh, really good talk today. How'd you, what'd you think of it? I mean, a lot of really deep insights. So what Dan does is really interesting. He works with lots of uh, like first rounders, like guys in pro ball, like some secret names that he can't reveal. I know everyone like, ooh. No, but Dan really does work with a lot of high-level hitters now. He was just in Fort Myers, uh, got flown down there to work with some really high-level high school players. So he's a, become a really sought-after guy. It's not surprising. He's a really, really smart dude. He was one of our favorite teammates. Um, just a guy who has a really high baseball IQ and really understands the game. So it's not surprising that people are really, you know, trying to get in touch with him. And he's pretty, pretty booked up, it sounds like. Yeah, Dan's always been a, at least on the baseball field, just a, a guy you want to be around to listen to how he, how he has to explain the game, his perspective on the game. And it's definitely no coincidence that he's excelling in the, in the hitting world how he is. He's just not as prominent of a name yet because he's not loud on Twitter and Instagram how maybe myself is or you are. Definitely, more, definitely less prominent than, uh, than Dan Blewett is because Dan Blewett is the, the coach of the stars on YouTube and uh, Twitter. Well, well, we talked about this. I mean, Dan is really making a name for himself where it counts, right? Like he has agents sending players to him. He's got org- pro organizations sending players to him rather than wasting all of his time on social media. So I applaud him for this. So when you talk about prominence, you know, internet prominence, which is something we talk about in the, in the discussion, internet prominence is not the same as actually succeeding in the real world, right? You can have a lot of Instagram followers or Twitter followers and not, and still just be really scraping by or just kind of be just smoke and mirrors. So, so yeah, I mean, he's, he's got a lot going on and he really shared a lot of that, that, that depth of knowledge today. I mean, some of the things that stuck out for me, obviously a lot of the approach stuff and just treading lightly, not trying to pick apart a hitter's swing when he's in a tournament, right? You can't just overhaul a guy when he's right there. We talked a lot about, um, you know, plate discipline approach, but also just like what are some of the new trends and is hitting really that new, right? Like everything's kind of been done and he kind of said, hey, I don't know if there's that much that's actually being new. Sometimes it's just being explained in a different way. Yeah, he breaks it down really well, and that's that's part of the appeal of having Dan as your hitting coach is that he can relate in more than one way, and that's always the difficult task of a hitting coach is to explain the same thing 10 different ways to 10 different people and get the same result. So I think when you listen to this, you're going to realize that he's far ahead of the curve in being able to relate to hitters and to explain and touch on concepts that might seem new, might seem difficult, but they're actually old school and they're very, very basic once you break it down. Yep. And obviously Dan was a pro hitter, played, like you said, played with uh, both of us and just has a, a wide range of experience. And he's not a bigger guy. So a lot of times bigger players who just naturally destroy the ball or throw fuel, you know, as pitchers, they don't, they don't have to s- struggle and strive as much. And Dan was a, like a, a gritty middle infielder who really had to 
you know, know the game and know situations and maximize his own ability to be as good as he ended up being. So usually those are the kind of players that become the best coaches. So, um, Bob, let's jump into it, man. But yeah, this is a great, great conversation about 90 minutes. Uh, I know we're excited to share it here with you. So without further ado, let's jump into our conversation with hitting coach Dan Hennigan. Well, Dan, thanks for joining us on the show, man. It's good to see you again. Good seeing you guys, man. I uh, I missed you guys. Miss missed playing with both of you. You're just saying that I was a pitcher. You didn't. We weren't really friends. Yeah, you, know, you don't miss Dan. You don't no, miss I have Dan. I I miss Dan's work ethic. I miss his uh, deadlifts. I didn't have a work ethic that last two years. I was just trying to trying to trying to keep it together. You mentally, cool, man, getting swole, yelling at people for not putting the weights away. <laughs> uh, was I? I don't know. That sounds in character, but who knows? No, I don't know. I never went in the weight room. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Dan, Dan knew his place. Position players were not welcome. I mean, position players, Dan, what, what were your work workouts like in college? Or in, in college, not so much. In, in college? Pro in pro uh, ball. I misspoke. In, I misspoke. In pro ball off seasons, it was get yoked. Absolutely enormous. So I'm I'm five six with the cleats on, and uh, probably f- my fighting weight. My fighting weight is probably like one forty five. So for me to get to one sixty, th- those fifteen pounds are enormous on this body. So I just was a bowling ball walking around. Uh, but then by the end of the year, I would always be back to being a little bitch, honestly. Uh, but no, so I would get huge. I would get huge and. Uh, I would look like a bodybuilder for a little bit, but it wouldn't make me a better baseball player because I didn't understand functional strength. So I should have just gone to like a spring break Cabo thing. Yeah, there you go. Mm-hmm. And then, mm-hmm. and then my final years, uh, I had so many arm problems, tore labrum twice, bone scope in the elbow, so many arm problems that it became just like injury prevention stuff. Yeah. Uh, but honestly, I liked when I was yoked and just trying to hit homers and not understanding my game at all. I like how you said trying. Good. I, I appreciate you threw that in there because trying isn't you know the same as doing. Exa- well, yeah, no. No. But I would go up to like guys the first – in spring, in spring training, I would like ask people how much they bench and stuff. You know, mm-hmm. just how well, they stack up to me. Yeah. Well, I, I do want to get back to that topic because that's, a, I think, a really interesting – especially from a guy who's smaller like you and – a guy who's really weak like Bobby right. is just knowing yourself just as a hitter and what you can and can't do. Right. I know we're going to talk a lot about uh, things like launch angle and exit velocity yeah. and, and all the different things. That the swing. wasn't on the, that's not on the outline. Listen, Bob, it's going to happen. Launch angle but and then, swing velocity. Is that what you said? No, no, no. If you're, Bobby what? being weak. That's what Bobby being weak is on the agenda for sure. I'm sorry. You're right. I, I, I glossed over that part of the, yeah. Outline. But every kid wants to know their numbers and they want to hit the ball harder and then they want to lift it and they want to hit dingers, but a lot of them just can't like Bobby. Right. So you got to right. know that's where you come in as a guy. So Dan, you were just in Fort Myers. Tell us about your trip. Crazy. I cannot believe I sound so old saying this. I cannot believe how good these kids are. Now this is the absolute best of the best and perfect game is just turning these kids into little like quasi celebrities already. Well, as I was walking in, there was a kid playing for this team called the Florida burn. 
Hold on, and, back up, uh, back up. So why were you in Fort Myers? What were you doing there? Uh, you were attending some sort of... Yeah, course. I just wanted to do it. Like, I wanted to get Tanner. And so I went south. You no, do have a nice had, glow to you. Thanks, man. I, that's that Florida glow. It's a Florida mosquito <laughs> glow. glow. Uh, no, I was there because I have a couple hitters that were playing in the tournament. And they have crazy passionate parents that paid to fly me down and uh, would work with me when they weren't playing, keep them fresh for the, for the agencies and scouts that are watching them. So I was down there just kind of networking, talking to a lot of agencies, talking to, I was trying to talk to some scouts, trying to figure out what their team wants. And I found some pretty interesting stuff that maybe we'll dive into later, but uh, yet yeah, these kids are ridiculously good. So I was watching this national tournament and they got 16 year olds throwing 96. They had a, uh, a kid throwing 92 with almost a 2,700 RPM spin rate fastball, which is ridiculous, and mm-hmm. sitting it. Um, I, kid spitting on mid-80s sliders. That A mid-80s fastball in high school for me was a tough one. And these kids are just spitting on sliders. And stuff. It's crazy yep. how, how good this level is. But what, what percentage of the talent pool were you actually watching there? I mean, it sounds like that's probably like the cream of the crop from all over the country. Is that correct? Yeah, these kids are freaks. The the teams, they're not they're not like I, I was from Chester County, Pennsylvania. We had a team called the Chester County Crawdads. We were pretty good. We actually had the entire <laughs> team go uh go play college ball and a couple of us ended up playing professionally. Joey Wendell was on that team with the Rays. Um we were good, but there's no local team anymore. Like the, yeah. the team that I had three of the hitters on, center fielder from Louisiana, kid from Cali, kid from Hawaii kid from PA, you know, so like these aren't even, they don't even know each other. They're just showing up. They get handed jerseys. It's crazy. So the yes. 1%. It's so a little, even. a little about that tournament is, uh, so my travel organizations is part of a, I guess a conglomerate Chicago scouts association, which is probably 15 to 18 organizations that send the best of their best to a tryout. They choose the team. Um, I coach the 2022 fall team so it's like an all-star team essentially yeah you do. and it's a and of course i do i mean yeah. what could they, they only choose the best coaches they could possibly find but my team is you know louisville 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 south carolina commit alabama commits i mean it's just the a who's who of of all-star kids in the area so it's not it's not what travel ball is when people think like oh you play with your buddies yeah. uh, in the neighborhood like no these kids are they're they're going down there to get drafted. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's no actually, there's no other reason to, to go there other than to try and yeah put get yourself drafted on a, or get a late a late uh, secondary offer or maybe a leverage offer. You know. And so for parents who might want or kids who might want to Google what this tournament what was the exact name of this tournament or was it? I think not? it's called PG National. I think. Okay. Because I know it's yeah, the it's WWBA. Like it's usually in Jupiter. This yeah, year, yeah. COVID brought it to Fort Myers. It's the World Wood Bat. Uh, by perfect game, it's it's the best it tournament. Is. It's an invite only. The Florida Florida Burn actually is usually the favorite in that tournament. That's top okay. five national program. Yeah. yeah. I just want to interject here and say how 
<laughs> pleased I am that there's now two Dans giving Bobby grief today. <laughs> I think yeah. I can yeah. see how it flustered This is going to turn on you, Dan. This is going to – Dan blew it. This is going to turn on you real quick. <laughs> one with air, one without. So it's coming to Bobby from all angles. Well, I'm, I'm kind of like I read the tide, and I'll, I'll jump ship real fast, Dan. I just want to let you know. So there's no loyalty here. I might even turn on myself. You, know, you never know. Bring it. I'm 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 the king of this jungle who could use oh. a could use a match every once in a while. Oh. Like I'm tired of just, you know abusing anyway. Bobby. Well, I I am not really tired of it, but you know, a, a fair fight is always appreciated. No, so, I heard I, I texted I texted Bobby beforehand and I said I'm gonna come in yelling real hostile from the get go, no reason. And he said, uh, Oh, so Dan blew it. <laughs> classic Napoleon syndrome, you know? Yeah. Classic. That's that's yeah. what I do. Mm-hmm. So when you're working with these kids, like they're in a, obviously an important tournament yeah. and you probably can't like do too much and overhaul their swing and screw with them. Right. So like, how, how do you tread lightly when kids are, I mean, they got some pretty important games, a lot of important people watching them. So what do you do to work with them while at the same time, not, you know, getting in their heads? I treat these guys the same way I treat my pro clients and that because they're going to be, and that is, I figure out what is going to get them paid. And so what I mean by that is I uh, came up and the first guy that was actually nice to me in any form of pro ball was named Freddie Bynum. And he played big league time with the Orioles, really good second baseman, middle infielder, solid hitter. And he would always say like the mindset has to be money. So figure out why a team's going to pay you. And so then from there, I just kind of took that and found as many different options as possible. I know pretty much what every hitting coach in the country is teaching. I know what almost all of the MLB organizations value. Uh, And so I can figure out within all of that, you can kind of grab back different things. Okay, if I use the Dodgers movement of the torso here and we kind of do what the Yankees like to do with the back leg here, that'll really work for this kid. Whereas another kid might be like me, and he is doing everything perfect as far as what maybe the Mariners are looking for. But he, it's a fly out to center field every time, where for another person, that's a homer. So why is he still doing that? We got to change that up. So I try to figure out what's going to get these guys paid and then model their game as close to that as possible. But in a, in a tournament like this, I know what the results need to be. And we have a general idea of the type of pitching they're about to face. And I try to just simulate that. I don't get in their head at all about mechanics in a tournament um, unless there's just something absolutely glaring. For instance, the one kid was facing this lefty, super athletic lefty, uh, probably high 80s. And he, met, he, he struck out, missed underneath good four-seam fastballs. So I was just saying top knuckle. And what I mean by that is, like, if this is the ball, I wanted him focusing on just crushing, breaking the knuckles of the ball instead of down here. That had nothing to do with mechanics. Super simple and he ended up going bananas. And that was such a simple process to the point where he actually hit a double and his double celebration was going like this. So like it worked for him, but just that mindset. Um, so yeah, I, I try to just make them comfortable in, in a game scenario. In the off season, we'll dive in, but not in a tournament like this. That, I mean, that cue, the top knuckle is it makes so much sense to someone that hits or that's been in the game. Like, okay, you're making a physical adjustment by thinking something differently. Whereas somebody who doesn't have a feel like that, uh, uh, what I would consider a bad hitting coach, 
is, okay, well, you know, you're, you're dropping your top hand or you're, you know, you're doing this early, you're, you're opening up early. So fix that mechanically. It's not most, especially in-game adjustments are not physical, like they're mental, you know, whatever you're doing, if you're way early, you got to think, you know, you know, crush the first base coach. If you're way late, you got to think, you know, hit the third base coach, whatever, something mental that gets you to change something physical. I mean, that's, that's an awesome example of, a coach with an idea that, Hey, the, anything I say, to this kid, he's going to take it and multiply it by 10 mentally. So it's gotta be simple. And it's gotta, it's gotta be something that works, you know, works without him having to think about it. Yeah, thanks man. The, uh, I, I'm, I wasn't always like that. I wasn't always like that. So there was a stretch where, you know, guys would send me a video and I would send them an eight bullet, you know, thing of what we need to feel the next at bat. And that was as short as maybe three years ago I was doing that. Um, so I, I gradually had to, had to make the adjustments myself. Um, but, I, but I still see you're right. Um, I was actually at a, at a game front row, no big deal, got the ticks. But uh, I was at a game that I got flown to and front row and I was next to another hitting coach and he was looking at video and the guy struck out. And this was a, this was a double A guy, struck out. And the, the other hitting coach goes, oh, he's not doing it right. I mean, he's not, he's not doing what right? He's not doing what I taught him right. Like, dude, that was a, that was a bouncing 12-6 curveball. He swung at a bad pitch. So now this guy is, like, giving him a hard time about his mechanics and how he lost the backside and all this thing. And, no, he lunged because he got fooled. So maybe he needs to recognize pitches better or know that that was a, an obvious 12-6 curveball moment that he doesn't know about. Why doesn't he know that a 12-6 should be coming then? So I was that – person for sure but i appreciate the compliments now man so to summarize you were a trash hitting coach just three years ago that's right that's exactly right i know but it's i appreciate that you know like like everyone else who gets to a high point you've got a lot i'm like you're really sought after sort of a hitting coach everyone's still evolving right and i think that's that's your point is that you still have to learn like how to tread lightly and how to not do too much when kids like still are just learning like even this the basics yeah yeah to the point where my my latest uh dive deep situation here is now um figuring out how to get these guys the right mindset um so i i have a, a couple of hitters that probably mechanically have swings that i'm not sold on and that don't always work at the highest level uh, and then I have guys that are absolutely flawless and, and I mean that, and I'm very proud of both sides, but two of the guys that I can think of in particular that are, that have, you know, one of them has been in a home run derby. One of them, uh, has world has a world series ring. Uh, these are guys that are accomplished and have very large houses and very nice cars because of the game of baseball and their swings aren't all that good, but their mindset, the moment they walk into a, a my gym like you can feel their energy versus the some of the guys around them and you were making jokes about king of this jungle you can see it um with some of these guys and that matters and the success is there and so that's my next thing is because i got some kids i have a, a fourth rounder with the braves that is just an absolute phenom he's 19 years old he's just a freak and he's gonna be in the big leagues there's no doubt but he doesn't have that mindset and that's what's going to stop him from being a household name. And so that's my latest thing is actually becoming 
more of a psychologist. Yeah, I like the I, I like to say, and I've tweeted this out before, and I want to get into it with you, Dan, a little bit because I don't can't understand. Say Dan, that doesn't mean anything to either of us. With Henny, Ball Henny. Dan, or Dapper Dan, which one? I go by Hen Dollars. <laughs> so, Henny, I want to get into how. Well, my point is, confidence is the ultimate hitting tool. Like the, my, there's guys in the big leagues with awful mechanics. You see all the time. There's very, very high level hitters that have a lot of success that have mechanics you wouldn't teach anybody but they're like you said their confidence is just through the roof they walk into the box they have an approach they know what they're looking for and they battle and they can barrel um and i've said this on twitter and it's baffling to me that you're a hitting coach that has no twitter persona and doesn't like to battle people on twitter and it merely it actually pisses me off to be honest with you i need you on twitter i need somebody on twitter i can bounce stuff off of just to antagonize because right now I just basically antagonize myself. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just don't have the time for it, man. I can't do it. I, uh, you need to make the time for it. I know. I know. I even stopped doing the Instagram. People were legitimately stealing my stuff and I wasn't in a position to monetize and I, I had to stop. Uh, so I, I, I get stuck in between. I need people to know about me to reach the monetary goals I want in life and not have to work my whole life. Um, but at the same time, part of why I get the clients I get is because I don't divulge what I'm doing that's creating some of the success. And I just found this like diminishing returns on, on giving information out. And so, and then the Twitter world, you can't even give information out because nobody wants to hear it. And they're just yelling no. at each other. There's no, and, we're not exchanging ideas. We're exchanging insults yeah and there's like these little gangs of there's like these pockets of they only hang out with their crew it's like high school again and and so they'll only listen to what their crew has to say it's crazy man it's crazy so i i i for my own sanity have avoided most of the social media baseball world well let's talk about that for a second because you did say that you understand like you understand what everybody's teaching yeah uh uh dan blew it I'm sure you understand a lot of what these velocity guys are teaching around the country. You know, you're, you're not poorly read. You're a well-read guy from, from oh, everything such you a say. Well, such a well-read fellow. Such a well-read guy. So are there guys, are there guys that you've pulled stuff from that are in the hitting world that, uh, that do have these larger than life personas uh, on social media? Define pulled from. Uh, the things let's, let's start with guys that you agree, maybe you agree with some of the stuff that they teach. I've, uh, yeah, I've definitely learned some stuff or, or seen stuff that I agree with. There's, there's nothing, um, that I've seen out there that's strikingly new. Um, and there's nothing that I've seen that it isn't some version of something else that I've already experimented with or seen be effective or seen be ineffective. Um, but no, there's guys that I absolutely agree with on there and there's guys that, um, have bits and pieces of things that I really like. And then other things they go, like, I'm basically like, as they're talking, I'm like, yep, yep, yep. No, 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 no. So like, there's a lot of guys like that too, where they just maybe, you know, and just because I disagree doesn't mean it's not effective for somebody. My, my whole thing is like, these guys start arguing with each other about all these different things. And then they say, who have you worked with? That's it. That's such a random thing because someone who works with a power hitter and the guy blows up, what they don't talk about is I know eight other professionals that that guy worked with that had such bad seasons 
that their, their team basically said, if you work with that guy again, you know, we're going to change your contract to the same as uh, skydiving or work or riding a racing motorcycle. It's that detrimental for you to be working with that guy. So don't do it again. So, you know, th- the same thing that created one all-star ruined someone else. So it, it's hard to say, you know, I fully agree with this. This is how it should be. Or I completely disagree with this. This is how it should be. Do you see new stuff to you on the web? Like, is anyone like blowing your mind? Is anyone like, wow, I never thought about that. Or wow, what an effective like new thing. Where is it kind of like the Simpsons where you can make new jokes, but the Simpsons already, they already did it. Yeah. I just feel like baseball has been around for so long and the game goes in cycles for sure. And the way the breaking balls are taught uh, or pitch movement in general starts to show uh, more effective swing patterns for that type of pitching. And then everybody starts to follow that type of swing. And by everybody, I mean like the, the social media hitting gurus. And so they do all that and they post a video of a guy succeeding. And now we're going to, there was a while where everybody was uh, doing the Josh Donaldson swing. Everybody was teaching that. Um, they were, doing, there was Jack Peterson for half a year until he started hitting 100. Uh, and then, it, and then it moved on to Aaron judge. And now it's, you know, Justin Turner and Arenado or whoever else you want. Um, so it, it changes every year depending on who's doing well, but really it depends on the type of pitching. So Mike Schmidt with the, a chop down swing would actually be pretty effective against this high spin rate fastball right now. And he would be dominating once again. But if you put him in the era with Maddox, no shot. He doesn't touch Maddox. Not with that swing path. He just, it never lines up. So yeah. uh, you just got to figure out what's going on with the pitching and how you can kind of match that. Yeah. That's yeah especially like, uh, like ahead, hitting is hitting has become a brand you need if you don't have a brand and i think the biggest takeaway for me for the guys on social media is i don't agree with probably 90 percent of what they're saying but some of them are saying things differently that will trigger a different thought for myself that will that will, will get me to figure it out so if you've got like guys say swing down, you know, you know, get on top of the ball, swing down. That is interpreted a hundred different ways by a hundred different people. So it's, it's definitely dependent on who you're working with. Some guys you say swing down to the ball. Some guys you say you need to swing under the ball. Some guys you say you need to swing level to the ball. You know, there's, you're probably saying the same thing 20 different ways to get the same result that you're looking for because your eyes are seeing what needs to happen and they need to feel what needs to happen. And Twitter does not siphon through that information. They say one thing and that's my brand. And that's, and that is what got X hitter to the big leagues that I worked with. And I need to ride that guy as long as possible because he's my moneymaker. Kind of how you said that's guy made that guy made my money was similar to a lot of the pitching guys. And I'm sure in other sports and I've, I've tried to actually get in other sports like a, like a soccer Twitter or a basketball Twitter. And it's no sport has the level of arrogance in coaching that baseball has and <laughs> on Twitter. Ego. It's just unbelievable. Like everybody needs to have their own buzzwords, their own, you know, their own persona. And I'm still looking for that basketball Twitter hit Twitter guru. No one wants to talk flight. about basketball. It's a basketball popular sport. It's so Blue dull. It. It's so dull. You just run down, you throw the ball in the net 
Then the other team runs down, throws it in the other net, and then they do that like 50 times each. Why are we watching this? How is that a sport? You're both both teams you're, are throwing the net like 50 times. You're so you're and, so and the team that does it 52 times is the champion. Like <laughs> that's a sport. You're oh, so wow. dated. Wow. Um, <laughs> anyway, do you like how I summed up basketball just like that? Yeah. Um, Spot on too. Yeah. So Dan, um, tell me a little bit more because I'm personally curious. Tell me about the cycle of Instagram because a lot of people. You know, Instagram is really popular. I personally got uh, like, I pushed back from it back in like March. I was like, look, um, I, I just can't do this anymore. This isn't like my kind of content. It makes me feel guilty that I'm not doing Instagram as a creator because like you said before, it's important to be known on the web. And so you feel like if you leave anything on the table, like if I don't do Twitter, I'm leaving money on the table. If I don't lose, do this or that. But at a certain point, you're like, I just can't do it all. And some of this really drains me mentally. Um, so can you talk about building your brand on Instagram as a hidden guy? And then also just like where you're at now and talk to that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, in the beginning, the first maybe 15 videos on my Instagram weren't even me. Uh, they were my hitters, but it was my little brother just because he was like, dude, you got to do something get get on social media so he started just posting uh and then i started editing some of the videos and just showing these quick like i would say meet whoever whoever was there and maybe it was a kid named makai or a pro guy named matthew or something and i would say meet matthew and then we would go through what we did in that one hour and i was getting pretty good results and so then more people would want to do it and then i started realizing that some of the high school kids, they just wanted to be on Instagram. I didn't even realize, I thought they wanted to work with me. They just liked my editing and wanted to be on Instagram with a cool song. So they, now they're on there and then it starts to blow up a little bit more. And then I did a couple like with a little bit of a sense of humor and all of a sudden some of the videos were getting, you know, 80,000 views and I didn't understand what was going on. Um, I, I worked with a 12 year old that ended up being on the cover of Time Magazine and he kind of blew up my page a little bit. And then I got the opportunity to work with some, some pretty big studs that have had a lot of success. A couple of them actually playing in the World Series right now. And, uh, but anyway, I, I started to use, I know we, we were just bashing buzzwords, but I started to make up my own buzzwords strictly because part of being a hitting coach is you don't have like a nine to five. You have your hours that you're working. Um, for instance, today I'm going 1230 to 830 tonight. And, but you all, you're never done. So at midnight, I might get a text from a frantic father or, you know, I've had guys call me when there's an issue, when they go out in a, in a, in a way stadium and then they go to a bar and they, they got in a fight and they don't want their agent to know about it. I get that text. <laughs> so there's all, there's like all these different things that you become as a, as a hitting coach and as a friend and almost like a big brother to them sometimes physically too. Cause I'm enormous. And so, you know, all of that. Uh, so, so anyway, I, I, at times when you're texting all these guys, you can't just say like, it's, it's hard sometimes to explain something or, or use a bunch of words. So we, I created these buzzwords just to make the texts easier. So I have something called a release scale and it's just the amount that the wrist has released by the time they made contact. So what number are we at? Zero to 100. Um, and we could dive into that way more, but just, that was just a quick example. 
So if, if a kid says 40, that's way different than it's just a much quicker way so that both of us can understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I'm not even, I don't even remember where this started. Well, I want to hear what, what do you advise this, this young man who's in the, the bar fight who's in trouble? I mean, is you like, find, find an old car, get the body <laughs> in the trunk. Yeah. And you're like, who saw it? We need it. Like, what, no, what do we do? Get, get your hand on ice ASAP. And I gave him the number of a lawyer in case there was going to be any issues. That's exactly what happened. And the lawyer helped him out and he was good. So, uh, it's, it's funny, dude. Like I always laid pretty low during my career. Like I just like never really cared about drinking or the bar scene very much. So it was my exposures to risk were low. Like I wasn't going out that much, but it's funny how we all have like teammates or just people we know that just like trouble finds them. Right. Like I had a teammate in college, like it didn't matter we went out once a year or once a month, he would get in a fight like literally every time. Like didn't matter what his frequency was, just like he found trouble or trouble found him. It was like so bizarre, even when he was being good, like didn't do anything to anyone, someone would like hit him with a bottle or something or just like throw something at him. It's like, well, you're was like a magnet, for, you're a magnet for trouble. Yeah, I don't know. He but, had a face, he had a face that yeah, everybody a wanted a punchable to punch. Face. Everyone to- <laughs> But no, so I mean, like, so with all that little stuff, sorry, I remember where we were headed with it. Uh, I started using some buzzwords and this was like in 2017. And then on Instagram, all of a sudden I'm seeing guys with like 40,000 followers saying this made up word that I made up a couple, you know, months prior and like ridiculous things like, like serving the pizza pie is something that I would teach little kids. I saw a Mets hitting instructor saying that phrase like a couple months after um i I do this thing called the ring and it's just kind of like this the ring is a mixture of posture and uh like the way the torso moves or maintains uh it's basically this floating halo around the rib cage and you play operation with it once you land you can't touch any side of this halo and if you do you get zapped um and now i gotta explain the game operation to most kids but just, <laughs> so that that's the the ring is a phrase we use and and you know maybe the ring is too high or it's tilted too much or we ran into the front of the ring stuff like that all of a sudden i'm seeing guys talking about the ring talking about i, I have this thing called cut the string and anyway i was seeing all of this i wasn't in a position to monetize the way they were uh they already had kind of a machine behind them and they were grabbing stuff and and to the point where i was getting pro guys who were saying like he's stealing your stuff. And you, they would send me the, you know, be in my DM and I'd get salty and be in the shower, like having these fake arguments with them. Um, so I just said, I'm going to get out of here until I can figure out how to, how to monetize better. And plus the, the one thing, I don't know if this actually helped me or hurt me, but I would start to get, once things started to really go well on Instagram, uh, I would get comments like, like, how can I hit with you? And then the comment right underneath would be like, don't even bother. He, he doesn't have time. And you're like, oh man, that looks bad. So, so then I would delete the both messages and then DM both of them and tell them to get away from me and never talk to me again. That part is really, true, but, but no, I would, I just realized I'm not in a position to do what I want to do with this. I didn't enjoy that scene. Um, and so I just got out of it. Yeah. Well, it really is interesting. Just everyone thinks it's easy to be, on these platforms, even once you're successful, but lots of people on Instagram, especially, I think Instagram's hard to monetize. Number one, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but two, you have to do a new thing every day. It's like handing out a flyer. Like every day you need like a new Instagram post, which was part of the reason I just personally, it's like, this isn't for me. Like I want 
like I'm better with like longer form stuff writing and longer video. So I just like couldn't do it. So my Instagram's been, been dormant, been dormant for a while. The move but. that cracks me up though is the guys that will post one swing of a hitter. They worked with them for an hour and they post that one really nice swing, but it's enough for them to get the views and get the, I just can't do that. I like to edit. I, I, was, I was putting like music that aligned with the cuts and stuff. I really enjoyed all that, but it took a while for, for a yeah. 59 second video, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I got it. Well, when you're, when you're giving lessons or working with hitters from 12 to eight or whatever you're doing to later on today, it's, it doesn't leave much time for, oh, let's go edit this Instagram video for two and a half hours. Yeah. And right. hopefully people watch it and somebody DMs me for a lesson. Like right, yeah, you're better yeah. off just putting your time into the guys you're already working with and getting people referred to you because you are good at what you do. Thanks, man. Not you or no, either oh, of oh, you. Oh, right. People yeah. are good at things and they get referrals. Right. Gotcha. That makes more sense. Yeah. Well, and it is hard finding the balance. Cause like you said, if you're always just doing lessons from sun up to sundown, it's hard to get out of that because that's just like working a nine to five job. Ultimately, at some point, you want to find a way to teach your systems and then, you know, you can sell an online course or a book or whatever while you're doing other things because the grind of hitting coaches and pitching coaches, even strength coaches, even when you really love working with people, which I think all of us do, it's still just like it just wears you out after a while. And it's tough to have a social life when you work from 1230 to 830, right? So that's um, exactly right. And that's, that's where I'm transitioning as we speak, actually. So, uh, no, you're spot on. Into and having a social life? Yeah, I'm learning. Well, I'm not social enough anyway. Bobby and I, for those listening or watching, uh, we're roommates. We're road roomies in 2013. And Bobby and I were both, uh, we would tuck into bed right around 8.30 p.m. Yeah. And say our prayers. And we would go to bed. Bob, Bob's the, the social butterfly of this conversation. Yeah, Bob uh, that's, is, uh, sets that, the bar low. The bar is set low, but you're definitely the. It seems like the extrovert of the three of us. But so, so Dan, you're in Fort Myers, and <laughs> kids throw ninety six at sixteen. Yeah. How how do you see young people changing? I mean, are they heavily focused on their metrics and all this stuff? Are they bigger than they used to be five years ago, 10 years ago? Like what is the youth baseball player? What do they look like today? What are they concerned about? And what would you think they should be concerned about if some of those things maybe shouldn't be their primary focus? Okay. What do they look like? What are they concerned about? What should they begin? They look like grown ass men. Um, they are well-built. They, I, I really think it all stems from just they choose something earlier now where I, as small as I was, my first scholarship offer was actually basketball, not baseball, um, because I was John Stockton meets Allen Iverson. That's who I was. That's who I thought I was in my bedroom at least. But uh, no, so they pick something way earlier. They chose baseball. This is their thing. And their parents fully buy into baseball. This is their thing. And so – they, from an earlier age, look at a professional and say, okay, that, if, that's, if that's who I want to be, how can I be that? And they start to act like it sooner, look like it sooner, play like it sooner. Um, so what do they look like? They look bigger, better, stronger, uh, more professional, much younger. Uh, even their 
you know, pre at bat approach. I just like walked up to the plate, dragged my bat, hang holding by the knob and like picked it up and tried to hit. Uh, these mm-hmm. guys got a full routine that pop in the chain. They got, they're professional from a super early age for better or worse. Uh, what are they focused on? They're focused on getting to say uh, what their ranking is, um, whether that be a perfect game ranking or uh, what college they're committed to or what PBR has them ranked on their latest showcase. Uh, they're concerned about the amount of followers they have on social media and uh, just what they look like. They're very concerned about their appearance. And what should they be focused on? They should be developing a competitive mindset that, and, and to the point where they should be strategizing on what it takes at the position that they're most likely going to play to reach the highest level. What that looks like currently, where uh, things seem to be shifting, and how they can not only match that level or surpass it, but how they can be enough of a savage to move the people that seem to be in their way out of their way, how they can compete and win. Um, and I, that I don't see enough of. I, I don't see the heavy competitiveness. What I will say is at that level, I did notice a little bit of what I felt in minor league ball where you have a good game. You can feel someone else on your own team being like, nice, nice game, dude. They are not happy that you just had a good game because they can feel like, oh, that's not good. That means I have to have an even better game tomorrow because we play the same position. Um, so I'm, I'm in the way of their dream and they're in the way of my dream. You can see that at 16 years old now with some of these national teams, because depending on, you know, how that guy does against Velo, he might not play the next game. And a scout was there to watch him, but now he's not playing because he just struggled that game. And, and the other dude went two for three. So stuff like that, I think they need to uh, continue to, they got to get used to it because that's how it is. It's cutthroat. So I, I think the competitiveness is where the focus should be learning how to win. I don't think people understand that uh, what you said about professional baseball, like it goes against all your better instincts of playing as a team, trying to win, like, you know, being successful with each other. It's not, it's almost the complete opposite because everybody that's sitting next to you in that locker room is essentially your competition. It's not the other team. The other team is not who you need to beat to make it where you want to go. It's the guy sitting next to you. So it's a, it's like a, it's a weird tug of war between your friends with all those guys. And it's got to be even tougher for a younger kid, 16, 17 years old to see kids around them doing well that are on wearing the same Jersey, but knowing that they're also essentially taking food off of their plate for a lack of a better term. Like yeah, they're, no. they're, they're, that's their comp. Their competition is the guys in on their own team, not the guys across the diamond, which is difficult to, you know, and to use Dan's basketball analogy, you know, you're not trying to beat the other guys throwing balls in hoops. You're trying to beat the guys on your own team. Yeah. It's poor use of my analogy. Don't, don't, don't steal my analogies again. Thank you. This is, um, I'm stealing your buzzwords. That wasn't, you a buzzword. that, Instagram was, now. that was just a very rudimentary way of analyzing basketball, but I stand by it. Um, yeah. So do you feel like that has a long-term negative effect on these kids like do you think they can develop the competitiveness that all of us you know developed as younger players or is are they just kind of stuck in that routine because if you're you know competing against your teammates just like in pro ball when you're not in pro ball is there ever like a way out um well i think there's two things one 
I have seen there's a kid on the taxi squad with the Mariners right now. He has every possible tool and I don't see him making it. Uh, and I've told him this until he can change his mindset because he's so folk. He, we could be working alone and he's just absolutely killing it. A 12 year old could walk into the gym and you'll see him look over and he like perks up. He like postures up and like changes who he is. And now he's trying to impress this, like just this other human and, and that human doesn't care, but he feels this like burden. And I, I truly believe, I know we're getting psychological here, but I truly believe it's stemming from the social media world of like, they're constantly on Snapchat. They're constantly on Instagram they're, they're, or, you know, whatever the newest thing is going to be TikTok. Um, and so there's like, they're almost taught from an early age how to like, what to look like, how to, how to be cool with everything they're doing. And uh, it doesn't leave them just because they got signed. Um, so I, I think that I don't know how to remove that from them. But what I have had some success with is just doing, uh, you know, just showing them what competitiveness looks like and what a winner looks like. I've been sending guys, there's a, this hilarious video of, of Larry Bird and his trash talk stories. But to trash talk like he did and back it up, he was trash talking because he had worked on that thing long enough and he was able to assess that defender and say, okay, that defender can't physically or mentally stop me from getting to my spot. And once I get to my spot, I've worked on that long enough to execute. And that's not a whole lot different than a, a hitter you know, running his mouth or, or talking trash or being really cocky about something where some guys are just cocky to be cocky. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and that, that doesn't make you any better, but when you know exactly what you're trying to execute and you know, you're capable of executing it. And then you see a pitcher that, you know, doesn't have a specific thing that can beat you or prevent you from executing. You should be cocky and you should have this killer mentality and, and, showing guys what that looks like because a lot of them don't even know what that looks like uh i have had some success with that with guys changing but it, it's not a perfect thing that i've i, I haven't found the, the perfect recipe yet and i'm still in search of that yeah i, I kind of got like a flashback to like backyard baseball where you know sometimes you know your buddy just like can't possibly throw past you or just like can't get you to swing and miss at their breaking ball like it just isn't enough like you can wait on something else and still not get beat by it Kind of feels like that same thing. It is a good good place. Latin American guys are all friends with each other. Like those guys are, they they want to see each other succeed at least outwardly, but their competitiveness is to be successful personally. I mean, they're. It, I don't want to say selfish because baseball is essentially always a selfish game. You're always trying to be selfish and perform well, but like selfishly, these guys want to play. Like they want to be paid and everything else happening around them is insignificant, which might take away from the team aspect of baseball that a lot of us in the States are used to, you know, try and win as a team, you know, team, you know, we before I, or we before me, but you, I before E except after C proper grammar, Dan blew it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. proper grammar. But this the competitiveness with some of these guys is, is going to, shape the rest of their lives, you know, so they have to be uber competitive. They have to strive to be the best guy. Whereas 
some of the kids, you know, I'll use my program, for example, if they don't go to play college baseball, their parents have saved for college. They're going to go to a good school. They're going to get a good education. They're going to come out with it. It's not a, so much of a, not necessarily life or death, but it's, it's not so much of a, a rich or poor with, with a lot of kids. And that's, you see it everywhere. I mean, the people that come from nothing have the biggest impact in their sports. Like it's cyclical, right? Like Mike Tyson, you look at all these guys that are super successful. Most of them come from struggled backgrounds, maybe not personally, but uh, uh, financially or, or when they're coming up, they, they went through some hardships and they're shaped who they are. It's hard to not naturally instill that in somebody. Yeah. But I think a lot of that is, and I agree with everything you just said. I think a lot of that is organically groomed in them uh, out of necessity, whether it be the, the Latin guy or it be Mike Tyson. There's no plan B. There's no safety net. So they fully buy in. And and you're right. I Right when you started telling that story about some of the guys not worrying about whether or not they play college ball, I immediately uh, can think of a kid who's a really good ball player, an excellent fielder, solid hitter, and D1 player, but He's got such a safety net uh, with his family and his upbringing that it's just like there's no, there's no fire. There's no competitiveness. So you're right. I, I, I do. I'm still searching. I still believe that there is a solution and maybe it's a different solution for each guy. But that, that has been my latest thing that especially with the minor league guys where the moment uh, I can get them to buy into that, they go into spring and they're just like meaner than the guys around them. And they really start to differentiate themselves. And I think that's the ticket ultimately. That and knowing I've been trying to really find exactly what each, and sometimes that's the agent, sometimes it's the organization, but find exactly what's going to get that player from that organization to continue to bump up. And uh, actually it was, a, it was a White Sox first rounder, Gavin Sheets, who was the first guy that I realized like, okay, it's not just about, that hitter succeeding. It's about that hitter succeeding the way that that organization wants them to succeed. And so that's where I have to really differ my teachings from hitter to hitter. So it's, it's a, it's a psychological game. And then it's also like this, I have to appease the right people to make sure this guy gets his opportunity to get paid. So before we leave the, the mental, mental uh, topic that we were talking about, what does humble mean to you and where do you find that that word needs to or where do you find need, being humble needs to be a part of an athlete's persona so i'll give you an example my uh, a buddy of mine went to you know a guy pitched in pro ball in the major leagues for a little bit he went to a a college and spoke to their their players and one of the questions like they were being real quiet weren't really asking many questions and one of the questions that they asked him were like how do how do you stay humble and he's like, it pissed him off. He's like, I'm here to give you my experience as a high level pitcher. And you're asking me how to stay humble. Like what's wrong with you? What's, <laughs> but anyway, what does humble mean to you? And should athletes be humble? And if so, what does it look like? Humble in the baseball world? What, what does it mean to me? Um, mm -hmm. I guess humble means like not, uh, flamboyant with your with your actions or your success not rubbing in anybody's face um i i think the right version of humble it would be like what the art of war talks about where you never really disrespect your opponent you always 
accept the fact that that person can beat you on any given day and you understand and you take the time to figure out how that person could beat you and you make sure that that doesn't happen. Uh, so I think that would be humble in the right way where you're, you never overlook your opponent. Uh, humble in the wrong way would be unaf- or afraid to beat the people around you, afraid to make someone else look bad. Um, and I think that's weak. I think it's, and I, I struggle with that because I could have buried Bobby multiple times in 2013 <laughs> and I just didn't. I, I let him feel good about himself and I regret that to this day. Uh, but y'all, we all have our regrets. I know. I just, you've I been, carry, you've that been carrying that burden for seven yeah. years now. Finally got it off my chest. No, but, that's, uh, a, that's a good point. And I, uh, I've been actually working on a, a mindset thing. So I was actually on that topic yesterday and I think kids misunderstand this because I think parents rightly want to raise kids who are humble. Right. And, but you don't take that onto the field. Like there is no being humble on the field, except for I think what you said was very apt, which is respecting your opponents and all that stuff. And I think also redirecting praise, right? So like you see the star athlete, you know, put up 60 points in a basketball match and they're asking him about it. And he's like, well, you know, like our coaching staff has done such a great job. You know, this guy had an amazing game. This guy has been pushing us all year long. Like the team, they talk about the team, right? They redirect the success that they've had to other people. But on the field, I feel like too many kids lack this. I'm going to bury this dude. I'm going to make, I'm going to make, and I've had this thought many, many times. Like I'm going to punch out this guy three times today and I hope he gets released because of me. Like I had that thought many times on the mound. That's not humble. That's not nice. It's not kind, but during the game, it needs to be that. And afterwards it can be something different, but I, I find that, kids carry humble this humble attitude like oh yeah there's guys better than me no there's not not during a game there's not you're the you're the you're the only one did you hey dan's did you guys see the last dance i know dan blew it you were yeah, watching a little bit of it i watched it i enjoyed Danny, it did yeah. you see it yeah so yeah. i but i, I, I should say i watched it in the sense of uh a playbook not in the sense of entertainment you know like i really watched it with how can i get this mindset because i already knew jordan had it you know that's not a question but to learn how he did it uh and just get a a little better insight into some of that stuff did you Uh, did you get any can you how someone else's mindset yeah i mean you they talk pretty often about how how competitive the father would pit him and the brothers against each other like which you know, created love, I'm sure, but it also created a lot of probably like many traumas and eventually creates this hardened competitor that freaks out if he loses. Um, Terry Francona has a story when uh, they're playing basketball and Francona was like, all right, we got to get out to the gym. And he picks up the ball and shoots. Jordan had a freak out and was like, I take the last shot. I take that. Francona was like, you don't take the last shot until you can hit a curveball. But the, the whole point was Jordan was that competitive that he made that last shot and some other person tried to pick up his basketball and take another shot. You out of your mind? And like just those little things like that, as crazy as, psych, as psycho as that sounds, um, I think there is learning tools in there and, and just, just little competitive tidbits. I think it's, it's pretty evident when you watch the in-game footage, you know, like he gets interviewed after he loses to the Pistons or he loses, you know, or he wins an award and he's not bashing anybody. He's like, you know, they, they fought hard. It was their day. You know, we got to get better. We got to compete. 
And it sounds like what you would want a professional athlete to say, like show respect for your opponent. And then transition into Charles Barkley got the MVP in 93 and they're asking Jordan about it. And he's like, okay, now it's personal. Like he, he manifested something against somebody else to, to overcome it because talent wise, he was always better. He was always better than everybody else, but he needed an edge. Like you could tell it was getting like stale. That's why I went to play baseball, at least according to him, like it was getting stale. He was just beating the crap out of everybody. So when he came back, he started to manifest, you know, I'm sure he did it before, but he's talking about manifesting, you know, something out of nothing competition where there was no competition, you know, uh, an edge, you know, somebody said you're looking across the diet or across the court and looking at the guy guarding you. And this guy said something about my wife or my sister, or like he's manifesting things that aren't in real life. And it's putting him in this, this head space. That's, that's uncontrollably competitive. Yeah. Well, and for me, I always think, so say you got to witness exactly how, you know, Michael Jordan grew up and you like took notes. The thing is, if you did that same thing to a hundred people, you don't get a hundred Michael Jordans. You get exactly. one, you still get one. So it's almost like there's things you can do, but it's hard to know what's actually make. Cause I mean, what, what I took away from the last dance was of all the NBA players, incredibly competitive people. He was the most competitive and like hyper-focused at the right times compared to all of them, which is why he was who he was, like the most recognizable human on the planet at that period of time. But it's so weird to think that at the highest levels where the difference between one player and another is nothing, that he was like just significantly better than everyone else. It's like Usain Bolt, where he was just so much faster than everybody else. Like that was so not normal, right? Everyone's winning a gold medal by a hundredth of a second, two hundredths of a second. And then Usain Bolt comes along and blows people out by just an enormous margin. And it's just really strange when that happens, especially when you feel like it's a control, more controllable factor, like men mentality, which it's just, it was, is really interesting. But have, have you either guys read the book by, he was Jordan's trainer, yeah. Tim Grover. Tim Grover. Yeah. Cool. I really, I really, di I really disliked that book, but Dan, <laughs> what, what was your, what was your takeaway of it? Um, well, so I was always using animals as my analogy. And I like the three that, that he talks about. He talks about the cooler, the closer, and the cleaner. Um, and for those listening, uh, each one has a little bit of a different personality. And each one uh, has a different value or, or the way that they get themselves going. One guy kind of is like the hype man. He's dancing in the clubhouse. He's the one who, when there's an alley-oop, he throws his jersey up in the air. He's the crazy guy. He's Willie Adamas. For the, for the Rays, if you watch him after, he's got a celebration with every single player on that team. Uh, and then another one is a guy who more just hypes himself up. That was me. Uh, I, would, I actually created the pitcher, the catcher, and the umpire were always against me. That's what I put in my head. And I would get a hit, and I would be cursing at all three of them. And especially in college where uh, I was more successful and I was also less afraid to be myself, which is something I regret in Pro Bowl. But – uh, in college, I would I would lead the game off with a hit pretty often and or get on base. And I would be telling the pitcher, like, it's all effing day. It's all day. You're going, you're going how many innings are you going? Not today. And, the, and if I knew that a kid uh, – and, and then I'd steal second and I'd be wiping dirt off and I would just, like, try my best to lock eyes with the catcher and just, like, let him know, like, 
your arm ready? Is your arm ready for today? And, and that, that was just, and the catcher had no idea what was going on. Half the time he didn't look, look me in the eye because he didn't, he didn't care. He was just in his own world, but I'm creating these like things. If I knew a scout there was for that pitcher, I would try to drop him down as many rounds as I possibly could. If, if he was supposed to be a fifth rounder, by the end of the day, if he was a 15th rounder, that's a win for me. Um, so I needed that. So that was the other type of person. Um, that's more like a, who's like that. A lot of closers are like that. You'll see them just like really get themselves going. Like they're like, oh, ready to attack. Uh, Farnsworth would be a great example of that. Just screaming at himself. And then the final is just sort of the cerebral dominance um, where they don't really need outside. They just create it within and they can affect everybody in some powerful way. That's a Kawhi Leonard. That's a Michael Jordan. But the, the reason I don't like that book is because I think it's far more nuanced than that. Because where does Tim Duncan fall in that? Tim Duncan is one of the most dominant players of all time, but he's not mean. He often compliments the other guy and tells him, Hey, next time, if you just try this with your elbow, you know, you'll, you'll get better leverage on me. And, and so keep working kid, stuff like that. But then he would also, you know, put up 30 points on you and 12 rebounds. So uh, he doesn't really fall into that category. I feel like a, a Kurt Schilling, who was someone that was super uh, calculated on how he pitched to people one of the most dominant playoff pitchers of all time he doesn't really fall into any of the categories that he talked about so there, there's things that I took from that book but there's also things that you know I think uh and maybe that's just an editing thing where the editor was like listen you can't have 12 different examples we got to bring it down to three I don't know but anyway yeah I that book fell flat for me because it was just like to me it's just stories of guys that fit those three things and like nothing actionable whatsoever of like how you can actually improve your mindset. It's like, all right, cool, dude. Kobe Bryant's awesome. Thanks. Like good, <laughs> good, good book. Michael Jordan's better than I'll ever be. He's got a mindset that I like will never have. Awesome. Appreciate you. Like it was just like the most, I mean, like fundamentally useless book after just hearing cool stuff, which can get you fired up. Like, you know, great. It's, it's always great to hear about what other people do, but at the same time, do you have any way of cultivating this? Or are you just telling me that there's awesome people that exist? Right. Are, I think that's I where know. I had to try to create, take his stuff and what he valued or what he found common within all these studs. And I had to try to come up with my own way. Cause you're right. He doesn't really give it to you. And I still haven't, I still haven't come up with it, but no, you're right. But I did, I will say I enjoyed it. I actually enjoyed the audible because whoever reads it, gets me fired up. I don't know who that guy is, but he reads it so well. Hmm. I start punching the air. Red lights on the box and red lights. Dan, I, I think you touched on something that I want to go back to. It's that, like that, that little bit of self-doubt that probably everybody experiences where you're like, I wish I would have done that in pro ball. Like, I wish I would have been myself in pro ball. Like, you got to that level for a reason, right? Like, you, you fought your way to that level. And then we've all played at that level, the professional level at some point there's self-doubt creeps in, whether it's the, you know, can I compete at this level? Am I done at this level? You know, whatever, whatever it has to be, what you're struggling, you know, I'm just not good enough at this level. And to transition back to a little bit of the Michael Jordan, I feel like he never had that self-doubt. Like there was never self-doubt in that guy. And they, you know, they referenced Kobe Bryant and outwardly, at least from a distance, it probably doesn't seem like he ever had that self-doubt or he never showed it. And I think controlling that self-doubt, because you see it, I mean, I work with youth guys a lot more than I work with pro guys. You see self-doubt all the time. Like these kids have, as much as they want to be inclusive and they're, you know, they're 
further along maturity wise and maybe we were at that age in some aspects, there's a lot more self-doubt. Like there's not a lot, there's not as much blind confidence in their talent. Uh, even when they are, you know, talking about these kids in Fort Myers that are uber talented and they're going to be the best of the best, you know, in 10 years there there's, you can tell the kids that have a little bit of self-doubt and it holds them back. It definitely holds them back a little bit. And it's, you have to fight through that somehow. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, Barry Bonds didn't, had no doubt, you know, that in my opinion, I still think he's the greatest hitter of all time. Steroids or not. There's a lot of guys at Planet Fitness that are taking steroids that can't do what Barry Bonds did. Um, so, but anyway, he, you know, he has that famous quote of like, what do you do when you're in a slump? And he, I don't slump. You know, like, that's his confidence level. I don't slump. What, I'm Barry Bonds. I don't slump. Um, so like that, that there's no self-doubt there. Yeah. And I guess going back to what you started with, with, with me, if, if you go on to baseball reference and you look at my horrendous numbers, you will see if, if, if that's even possible for the first two weeks to the month of every professional season I had, I was hitting over 400. So I went into the season training, felt pretty good about myself, go into the season with kind of a blank canvas, dominant for a very short period of time. And by dominant, I mean soft liners over the second baseman's head and good defense. Um, so, but by, by month three, I'm hitting 250 to 220. And so what happened? Every single year, the same thing. And it's, I had a bad game, then I have a second bad game. And then I'm like, oh no, here we go. I got to change everything. I got to figure out what's going on. And then you start talking to people, you get three different voices in your head. Uh, this guy, he played in the big leagues and he just told me I should do this. So I got to do this. He told me I should switch my bat size. I'm going to switch my bat size now. And that all stems from lack of confidence and also this willingness. You want to appear coachable and you want to reach the levels that someone else reached. And without having a, a concise roadmap and, and a logical reason why you're doing what you're doing, you just take on whatever you just heard. And so by the end of, of month three, uh, I don't even remember what I was doing month one where I was hitting 400. Um, and, and this is, I, I'm going to brag here. Here we go. I have freakish hand-eye coordination to the point where in my senior year of college, I didn't swing and miss at a ball once. And uh, my, my, I don't know if it was my first or second year in, in, with the Somerset Patriots, uh, Lancaster Barnstormers got, or York Revolution got me to swing and miss at a pitch. This was in a day game. And I swung and missed. That was my first swing and miss of the year. And it was probably in the second or third month. And their whole pen, who was on the right field line, uh, threw their gloves up. And the, the catcher said to me, because they started laughing, the catcher was laughing, and the pitcher like fist pumped. And this is strike one. And he threw a really good changeup. And they had this, these two white barn houses in the center field. And day games, you could see the barn house and you couldn't see the ball. And so he threw a changeup and I swung and missed. And the catcher told me, we had, we had a money pool. We would put money in a hat until we got you to swing and miss. So this is coming from someone who has freakish hand-eye coordination and still sucked. So, uh, and by sucked, I mean low 200s, mid 200s every single year. Sucked. That's not good enough. And that's, again, coming from someone that can basically touch any ball they want to touch, and I still wouldn't have good numbers. So listening to every single person uh, and what they have to say about something is detrimental. I should have been a little meaner. I should have been more comfortable telling people, I understand what you're saying. Thank you. Um, but I feel pretty good right now. Or I, I think I have a plan, but thanks. Uh, stuff like that. And, and the more I talk to guys like Josh Donaldson has this story. He was working with Bobby Tewksbury for a while. And Bobby and I did a couple of speeches together. And, and Donaldson was telling the story about 
uh, when he was with the, the A's and he kept getting pushed down to triple A big leagues, triple A big leagues. Uh, finally, he told the triple A guy, like, he was like, all right, what are we working on this time? And he said, we're not working on anything. I, I have a plan here and I'm going to, I'm going to go for it. Cause this is like, I got to try it for myself one time. And then he became the, the household name he eventually became. Um, but I never had that confidence to say something like that. So yeah, the, the self-doubt is real and how to get rid of it, I think is telling stories like what, what I just told, what you told, um, and, and letting guys understand like, Hey, you're going to feel this stuff. Um, but you got, you have to have a weapon to get out of it and you have to have a couple anchors. And by anchors, I mean things that, you know, matter for your success. And if someone gives you information as, as insightful and beautiful as it might sound, if it doesn't pertain to your anchors, why are you taking that information? And that's not making you any better. If anything, it's getting you further away from them. And eventually you're just going to sail away and forget what you were doing. So yeah, that's, that's a hard, really, really good. That's, yeah. It's a hard place to be in to figure out when you can actually reject advice and when you should try it because being coachable and open-minded you're like oh i should try that but at some point you're right you have to like kind of close the door in people's faces is that what you're gonna say bobby were you gonna I was agree, gonna, bobby I, i'm not not with you never never he was just My, gonna compliment me i think i was gonna compliment dan and i was also gonna mm. add on to his mindset is you start the season hot 400 and for you know, when you're playing in pro ball, it's about getting consistent ABs. It's about being in the lineup every day and hopefully getting picked up and moved up. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, Dan Hennigan, were, were you ever slotted as the starter for any of those years? Or were just, you just when I, uh, with, with Camden. Okay. River so that Shirts. was, that was later. And for anyone listening, look up Dan's career. That was, that was a little bit later, right? That wasn't your first year. No, that was my fourth. Okay. So the first three years, as a guy, and I've been in this mindset before, you start out hot and you're still not in the lineup every day, you feel like, okay, I got to change something, right? There's, I, need to, I need to somehow – the next rung of being a part-time player is being a full-time player. And the next rung of being a full-time guy in independent ball is getting picked up and being an affiliated ball. Well, if you can't – you know, if 400 isn't good enough or starting out that hot isn't good enough to get you a full-time guy – then that self-doubt creeps in and, okay, I need to do something different. And then you lose all sense of self when what you were doing is very successful, stick with it. And Dan Blewett, I'm sure you've gone through this in the, on the pitching side, and I know I've done it myself in affiliated ball where you're just you're fighting like an internal struggle of what everyone else expects from you and what you know works and what you know is successful for yourself. And it's being stubborn to, you know, how do you be coachable and also stubborn in the fact that you know yourself better than everybody else? Yeah. And it's tough to know when to, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, uh, Dan too, is it's hard to know when to change and when not to change. That's one of, I think the most really difficult decisions you can make. So for me in my last three seasons, I hit like a two, two to three week slump each of those seasons. Of course, my last season was just a sort of a train wreck, but during those slumps, as it, as they endure, you're like, is this just variance, right? Am I just having bad luck? Are line drives not finding holes? Or my bats, you know, am I just getting beat sometimes and I shouldn't change my approach? Or is it actually time where I actually do need to make an adjustment to my swing? Or do I actually actually need to change my approach? Like, when do you actually need to change when you're not playing your best? Um, you know, my last year in, in Long Island, I was like, hurt enough where my stuff was diminished, but not hurt enough where I had to come out of the game. So 
I wasn't getting people out and I started to get a lot of, oh, you should do this. Why don't you throw a sinker? Why don't you, you know, pitch away more? All things that never, ever worked for me. But since I was struggling, I was like, maybe, maybe, I, maybe a sinker would help me right now because other stuff is different and things aren't working as well. And you start to, and then you just get really lost. And that's where I was and at different points. But my two previous seasons when I was doing well, I just forged right through those slumps. I was like, I'm very sure I'm throwing the ball well. I'm very sure things are just, I'm just in a rough patch. Sometimes you just get hit. I'm very sure that if I keep doing my thing, keep throwing the ball well, the results will eventually improve. And they did. But Dan, how do you know when you should change and when you shouldn't? Well, I, I wish there was an easy answer, like a one size fits all, but they're just not. So certain guys like, uh, like for instance, I, I got flown to San Diego and there, there was a catcher with them, uh, Austin Barnes. And I think he hit 179 the last full season. And this year he was just as porous. And uh, I got pretty good video of his movements and they're solid. He's got a better swing than a lot of guys that are hitting 280. Um, so does that guy need swing adjustments? Maybe little ones, but should he be trying to make swing adjustments mid season? Probably not. I think his approach was horrendous. He was swinging at balls way out of the zone, um, chasing everything. So I, I think someone like that, when, once you look at the context, uh, you can see, okay, this guy needs an approach adjustment and maybe just a, a complete mindset overhaul. And then you look at somebody else who looks like they're on time. Um, a, a Nick Ahmed would be an example of that, in my opinion. Uh, so that's a really good defensive middle infielder for the Diamondbacks. Uh, that dude's swing just isn't good enough yet, and it's getting there. But I think he has great at-bats, and I think he does some really impressive stuff. Uh, he just, when his bat touches a ball, cool things don't happen because he's not commute. He doesn't collide with the ball in a way that gives him good results. And so that person, uh, they could midseason – uh, switch some things up with, with, with their minds. And, and, then, and then there's other guys where, and this was my biggest thing, they're hitting the ball well, they're squaring it up, and they're just getting out. And then they start changing. And you're like, dude, don't touch a thing. You can't control the fact that that center fielder was playing in a weird spot and just made a diving play on you. Your 0 for 3 was three rockets. Stop it. Um, so those are the three different things. Sometimes the swing is money. Don't touch it. Your mindset or your approach or your vision just sucks. Um, other guys, your approach is money. Don't touch it, but your swing sucks. And then other guys don't touch a thing. Just keep, just trust what you're doing. And, and to know that it's so different for each person, but I, I know I failed with that. Um, even the year that I finally got the opportunity and, and Bobby put it perfect at your, it, the, the independent route is establish a role for yourself. Once you've established that role, prove that it's uh, valuable to a, an affiliated program and let them sign you from there. And, and that's the, the year that I got picked up offensively was my, I think my worst year, but I was playing shortstop almost every game. I was defending. My arm was really strong that year. And defensively I was, I was a monster that year. I was making a bunch of web gems. I had Pedro Feliz come out to me after a game and make me show him how I was doing certain things and all this cool stuff. And so I finally got that opportunity, but that year I started off that first week with like, I can, still vividly remember uh, a couple line drives where the center fielder did that thing where they just kind of like crouch down and they don't move and then they catch it. And like, I hit like three or four like that. And 
that's a really good result to hit a rocket right at the center fielder. They don't have to move. Um, but I started changing things cause I was getting out and it's just a, like such a common story for so many guys who struggle. So yeah. That, and that brings us all the way back to the confidence. Yeah. yeah. Do you have like a trans- hard hit? Do you have like a hard hit ball ball chart or is there anything you suggest <laughs> that young hitters do where they can track like, cause for example, say you have 10 games and you hit a really hard, you hit like one hard hit ball every, you know, you're like one for three with a hard hit ball in all 10 of those games. You have the potential to hit 333 out of those 10 games, which is a good stretch, right? But sometimes the line drive's caught, maybe three out of the 10, it's caught, and the other seven, it goes through for a hit. So you only got seven hits out of your 30 at bats. And so you're only hitting, you know, uh, 240. Like, do you have, do you, what, what do you, what advice, is there anything tangible, actionable that you give to players to help them understand how they're actually yeah. doing? Yeah. So I have, and I, I can't uh, divulge all of it, um, but I do have a, it, a lot of guys have a hitting velo that they want or an exit velo or basically how hard the ball comes off the bat in a game. And, so there's, there's that, and they're, they're looking for like, hey, we got to be triple digits, man. we got to get to 100. And then they have a launch angle. Let's get to 35. And at 100 miles per hour, 35 degrees, like we're going to do some really cool stuff. Well, that's great, but at no point in my life will I hit a ball consistently 100 miles per hour. So if that ends up being 94 when I really square something up or 96, and I'm at 30 degrees, that's a fly out. So what I do is I really define with that hitter, especially with the pro guys, because most of them, for the most part, have physically peaked. Now, they could get a little stronger, but all of them take their body very serious. They take their nutrition very serious and their flexibility, mobility. Um, So there's not going to be, unless there's an obvious momentum or ground force or kinetic chain issue where where they just aren't using uh, their body well enough to make the bat move faster, a lot of them already swing really hard and they're really strong. So we're not going to get any higher velos. So then we look at, okay, at that velo, where is that ball going to typically land? And then we will adjust the type of game that they're going to play. Um, so certain guys, I do need to bring the launch angle down. Uh, uh, and, and it's not like uh, we need to be at 12 degrees here, but I just, I show them, you know, when you consistently hit a ball like this, physics doesn't lie. And so that's where the ball lands. Uh, And then from there, we can start to play these two or three man games. And just to give you an example, um, the Astros did a great job of it. Carlos Correa and George Springer did it where they, the the Rays put four guys on the, on the left side of the infield and they both punched it through the the second base gap. Kind of like a a massive four hole that the Rays leave open. And so that was a one man game. They were playing Correa was playing against one guy. And often it was like, g-man Troy, which no i love g-man it's awesome to watch that guy but he's not the defensive guy you're worried about so when you can play a one-man game against a first baseman there's a good chance if you understand angles and how to attack that ball he's not it's tough for him to cover all that ground uh a three-man game would be a man on first uh one out and you got the second baseman in double play depth you got the first baseman covering so now you have this massive four hole and then you got the right fielder so can we play as a lefty 
can we play to the pool side and try to play this three-man game, me versus those three? I'm not competing against the pitcher or the catcher or the umpire. I'm competing against the first baseman, second baseman, and right fielder. And, and, and what point of contact can we grab on that ball that gives us that direction and, and the way that that ball can come off in a way that can be hit? So, yes, there's absolutely uh, very tangible things that physics doesn't lie about. Um, now, as far as, like, once we explain that, then we dive immediately into just feels and games within the game that give them that stuff. So earlier we were talking about the top knuckle. That's a game within the game. Pitcher doesn't know that the hitter is trying to hit the top knuckle of a baseball. He probably doesn't even know what that means. But the hitter is playing that game within the game. So there's, a, there's an easy uh, feel for that person that hopefully gives them the results that we know are optimal for that player. Uh, so again, going back to Camden, I had really dove into uh, driving the ball and hitting mechanics. And I was someone who could always have pretty good uh, body awareness. So if you taught me something new, I would literally do what you taught me. Um, and so I did uh, a lot of these teachings that, that pros were working with. And, and, and anyway, I ended up just flying out a bunch, a lot of good barrels, but they're flyouts for someone else that falls way out. Um, mm-hmm. So that was a bad game for me. That was a, so to get back to your question, yeah. There are tangible things you can do. And uh, that's something that I feel has really given me a a lot of uh, success most recently. Uh, It has nothing to do with the mechanics, but uh, just kind of angles in the way bat and ball can communicate with each other once you know the game you want. Uh, I got a kid with the Astros right now. It's going to be in the big leagues and awesome mindset. Uh, But he is someone whose mechanics the Astros hate, but he constantly gets to his spots, I call them, which is just where he's making contact. And he's just dominating people. He, they just did their training camp thing for some of the younger guys. He had a bunch of triples. He was facing a guy throwing 100, and he, he went he poolside homer and stuff. And Anyway, and, and his mechanics aren't great, but he's getting to good spots, and he knows what his good points of contact result in. So a lot of times he can make contact and just kind of put his head down and, and run to second base because he knows it's a double already. Um, and that's kind of something I'm really proud of. So when you're, when you're working with guys, let's – let's say varsity high school or above, you know, kids that are facing some decent velocity. What are you telling them about two strike approach? Are you, are you changing anything uh, approach wise or, you, you know, what's the mindset there for you as far as teaching to let's say better hitters? Well, I, I don't like uh, this new wave of a strikeout is, is the same as any other out. Um, I just, I don't like it. And I, I feel that the teams that are able to get two strike hits, which you've seen in the playoffs are teams that are winning. And so I do believe in trying to, I don't want to say short enough, but be more prepared to touch a ball versus to just swing out of your shoes. And uh, so what I teach is different weight distribution things. Some, and, and you can do these same weight distribution with a no stride, like a Daniel Murphy or a Juan Soto pretty often, um, or, or get the toe down really early and then kind of turn it into a no stride, like a Nelson Cruz, or um, with a leg kick and, and a hover, uh, like a Trevor Story, like a Luke Voigt. Uh, so there's, and they all have the same weight distribution. So all these guys arguing about like what the back leg's doing and what the front side should be doing and all these arguments you see. Um, a lot of them are actually talking about the same stuff. They just only were taught to teach it one way and don't realize that the other person is actually teaching the exact same ground force and exact same weight distribution. It's just moving a little differently. So anyway, 
once you understand how the body can kind of move and set itself up and then hold and still create some type of force, you can get down early or, or prep yourself earlier than you usually do and be in a position to touch a ball. And I'm a firm believer in being able to touch a ball with two strikes. Uh, I actually teach a lot of guys to shrink the strike zone. And I got that from Corey Hart, who had a couple of pretty big years with the Brewers. Tall blonde dude, if you guys remember him. Um, but uh, I work with his son and they're in Arizona and we will have pretty good talks. And he, he would talk about how that whole team really, Prince Fielder always had a 400 plus on base percentage and he was on that Brewers team. And he would say like a lot of times they shrank the zone uh, once they had two strikes, because those those nibble pitches are usually fastballs that like were either dotted up and you got to try to fight them off anyway, or it's a pitch that was never meant to be a strike and it's a good slider, a good changeup that looks like that nibble strike and ends up falling off. So once they shrank the zone, it actually made their uh, at bats with two strikes cleaner. Uh, and I know we don't have the time to really dive into that, but mm-hmm. yeah, I, I have them really lock in on the middle of the zone and be able to kind of feed off of that because. Even if your brain is set up for the middle, uh, once the pitches start, you're going to attack pitches that are a little bit outside of that middle anyway, and that ends up being the edges. Uh, so that's been effective. And then just being in a position where you can control body weight and and compete. So uh, Randy Rosarino was talking about how his brain thinks curveball, but his hands think fastball. I think it's a, a beautiful little sentiment because they're, he's prepared for the speed of a fastball but he's also like aware of what all the other things that could be coming. And I think different versions of that, no matter how you have to say it to someone is so valuable with two strikes. Uh, the best compliment I ever got was when uh, Brad Penny, who was in the, or was it Brad Penny? Was Brad Penny in Atlantic league for a second? Was he? I don't remember. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure. I want to say yes, but I don't remember. Brad Thompson. <laughs> Brian Thompson. Yeah. That's my dude, Brad Thompson. But, uh, I swear it's Brad Penny. Penny, not, not not the big chubby Brad Penny, the heavy sinker ball Brad Penny. Anyway, uh, he told me after a game one time, like, dude, I hate seeing you in the on-deck circle because immediately my brain goes to, like, oh, I got to throw 12 more pitches and I wanted to throw this inning. And I, I took that as a compliment, mainly because I sucked. But uh, me giving them that hard of a time with, and knowing that even when they got two strikes on me, that, that wasn't a punch out, I took that as a compliment. Now imagine that same feeling that a pitcher gets with a hitter that's actually dangerous <laughs> unlike what i was uh that's dangerous that's that's scary and that's what i think makes juan soto so absolutely dominant is because he has a real two-strike approach versus like an austin meadows who's up there just hacking yeah lou, lou ford was kind of like that in the atlantic league even though he wasn't like ultra dangerous lou ford was fun to pitch against because it brought the best in you but he was if it really mattered he was going to take you 10 pitches deep in the at bat for sure and, that's and if a guy he left who, one over the middle of the zone, he was going to hit it hard. Like, yeah. And that's yeah. a guy who was end, ended up playing in the playoffs with the, with the Orioles. Mm-hmm. When he was like 58 years old, too. Yeah. <laughs> He's still playing, is he not? He might be. I mean, and you, and, I mean, it's not hard to see why. Like, you can hang around when you just consistently have really quality at bats, right? Even as your bat speed slows, you know, he's in his 40s still just has great at-bats and eventually gets a good pitch that he can hit, right? He he couldn't, you know, maybe put a ball out oppo anymore on the pitch on the black, like maybe he could when he was younger. But he's just going to say, all right, uh, I'm just going to wait till I get one out or half, and then I'm going to put in the right field gap or whatever. So, yeah. Um, if only you had the pop, Dan, go oppo taco after you're on your 13th pitch of the at-bat. Right. 
it's not not in the cards for you. Not in the cards. My not knowledge goes in, in there. Yeah. So Dan, where can people find you on the web? What are you doing out there where they can learn more about you and, and your message? Uh, Brainandbarrelhitting.com uh, would be how to find me right now. Go on my Instagram. You'll learn some stuff. Uh, you're not going to see anything for a little bit, but in a couple months, uh, I, I developed something that we touched upon a little bit with, with understanding what type of hitter you are. Uh, and I got some financing for it. And so we're, we're really going to push it coming 2021. And so stay on the brain and barrel awareness because uh, it's going to, it's going to, the marketing push is, is coming. And if, if you want to work with me, um, I'm not easy to get a hold of. So I apologize, but I, 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 I uh, DM me or go, go through the, the proper channels on my website. You'll see the contact me page. Well, very good, Dan. This is a great conversation. We'll have to have you back on again. I think we're going to plan a hitting round table, so we'll have to have you in it. I'm just down. The guy who just throws throws down with everyone else. Just call the, daggers. The, yeah, <laughs> and we need to have uh, your co-conspirator, Kenny, on the show at some point to talk about your other endeavor, the, uh, the oh, yeah. King of the Hill. Yeah, that's pretty fun, the Expert Summit. So, <laughs> But uh, it's obviously been a great talk. We appreciate your time. Bobby, do you want to send our our good friend Dan on his way? Henny, appreciate it. I'll be in touch with you shortly here. We'll wreck right, on Dan Blewett. All right. I'm, our free I've time. talked to both of you enough today, so that's fine. Uh-huh.